standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 272 of the Standard Issue podcast. I like that little impressed look on your face, Jen, since it actually says on the script, episode question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark. mark. I was thinking, (laughs) has she done this? Has she she had a look? She has. Well done. Congratulations. I did. I'm Hannah Donlevy and I'm pretty sure this is one of those facts that comes up at the same time every year, but it bears repeating. There are too many spiders in my house. Oh my God. So I had many spiders. What? Six. I had six. Big or little? Medium size? What sort of size? Two of them, I was quite confident to just glass and Mm -hmm. the glass and the card check with. Two of which, I did do the glass and the card trick, but I was like, oh, they're a bit big. Yeah. And two that were so massive that even the cats went, oh, I don't know what the fuck that is, and ran off. And I just had to go into another room and tell myself in my brain that they'd crawl back out of the window. I'm sure they'll come back round again at some point. So this house... It's pretty old, so we get those really, really big... We're getting a new kitten next week, thank God. Maybe the kitten will eat some of them. But, like, we get those really, really massive ones where you're like, if I throw a shoe at this, there's going to be, like... I'm, there's going to be a clean-up job afterwards, yeah. basically. It's just going to put the shoe on and one. keep walking. Exactly. But my flat in London as well, there's, like, hundreds of them in my flat in London to the extent that I'm like, what's going on here? But actually, I realise how far I've come in the world because I can, like, pick some of them up in my hands now and dispose of them. But the big ones, no, absolutely not. I'm not touching you, no. I think it's because the weather's been nice, so the windows are open Mm. and people are mowing their lawns later. So they're just running up the walls to the inside. Also had a lot of moths, obviously, because the windows are open and the lights are on. In fact, Joan kept me awake till three o'clock in the morning (laughs) chasing a moth around my bedroom. For, yeah, a good hour and a half, I'd say. And talking of being awake at two o'clock in the morning, man, oh man, I've been trying to go to bed earlier than I usually do. And I went to bed at half past 11 last night. And then I was up again at one watching Nature's Most Spectacular Firework Display. Did you see it? No, what was that? Oh, there was like the most insane thunder and lightning. Like full on lightning. Constant lightning. Do you know what there was? Yeah, I woke up... Because it was raining really heavily. Yeah, it was also There was no that, thunder, yeah. but there was just like, there was a lot of lightning. Yeah, we so had the full effect. Some of that, but no thunder, weirdly. Yeah, well, well, we had crap loads of it. Loads. It was quite exciting. I like a bit of wild weather. I don't mind it as long as I'm indoors and not outside in it. <laughs> I'm Jen Offord, and last night I sustained a Bob the Builder related injury. Okay, already my legs are pulling up towards my body as I brace for this. <laughs> Did you tread on something in bare feet? No, I didn't. I'll tell you what happened. can't really see it now, but it does still hurt. For the listener, I'm pulling my lower lip down. Uh, okay. Anyway. Oh, there's like a red bit. Yeah, she gave me a fat lip because... And I think I was quite lucky not to need... Not to need any dental work. <laughs> Basically... Someone gave her a Bob the Builder, her being my daughter, a Bob the Builder tape measure. It's not a real tape measure. It, like The tape comes out and it's got like, you know, a few numbers on it or whatever. But it's long enough. Spin it round oh, okay. by the tape. And the uh, the big plastic bit that it goes in is, well, Hannah, it's quite big. 
and it was fantastic. And she spun it round, and it smacked me square. Oh my god! On the mouth, and I literally went, got up, covered my mouth, and like ran out of the room in tears. Oh, Jen! Thinking like, what's happened to my teeth? They were fine, but I did have a, a fat lip. It's still quite painful. It's horrible when you hurt yourself, when there's a kid there and you can't react in the way. I can remember I used to have a two-door car mm. and I was putting my nephew into the back of it in a car seat. So I had like the seat forward yeah. and I'm sort of leaning in, putting yeah. him in a car seat and wind came and blew the car door closed on me and my ah. shins just smashed against the side of the car. And I basically was in his face yeah. and I just like did this wince and then I closed the car door and then I just sat on the floor and cried for about five minutes <laughs> and then I got back in the car again and was like Hannah's fine <laughs> rather than just scream fuck into his face yeah that wasn't his fault though this was Lyra's fault yeah, so yeah, uh, I mean... you know it was an accident but she does know she's not supposed to like fling things around in the air like maybe that. we should get her a lasso or something God knows what damage she'd do with that. Christ. Yeah. It wouldn't hurt so much when it smashed into your face, though. That's true. I do fear quite a lot, or I have over the last three years, feared for my teeth quite a lot, I have to say. There's a lot of, like, heads, legs, knees. uh, Like, there's a lot of body parts akimbo, and there's very little respect for, like, the facial area. Yeah. My mum had to wear an eye patch for a while when I was a kid because uh, my brother had kicked her in the face when she was changing his nappy and done something terrible to one of her eyes. Oh, no. and, uh, and so she had to wear an eye patch for ages. Kids, eh? You'd have them. Not me. <laughs> I'm very bad for your health, let me tell you. So, no BT this week, but just enough time to say well done to the teams at Dispatches and The Times mm-hmm. for finally getting their Russell Brand exposés across the line. Coming up, I'm talking to Dr. Alex Kratoski about her really unnerving and proper existential new podcast, The Immortals, which is about people spending a huge amount of money to find the cure for, well, death. Are you going to be talking about Brian Johnson? Who's he? He's like this billionaire. He is, is he the blood transfusion guy? Mental. <laughs> yes. yes, we are. <laughs> my, my friend John is obsessed with him i'm gonna find you some screenshots hannah it's well it's tell him incredible. to listen to the immortals it's really Will interesting do. i chat to donna freed about secrets lies her extraordinary family history and her new book duplicity and in jenny off the blocks i'm talking about the highs and indeed lows in women's sport this week and in rated or dated our fugitive's <laughs> name is dr richard kimball <laughs> as we watch 1993's blockbuster the fugitive Hi, Hannah here. I am joined by Dr. Alex Kratoski. Thank you so much for joining me, Alex. You are the cause of some really unsettled feelings that I've had. <laughs> You're welcome. Your new podcast, which is released on Radio <laughs> 4, or you, people can listen to now in its entirety on BBC Sounds, in which you explore the methods, motivations and money fueling the tech entrepreneurs turned extreme longevity pioneers and what you mean by that is people who are trying to live forever or find the answer to living forever now you've been a tech reporter for a long time so you're well suited to talking about this but you also have a phd in psychology so i would like to start with the question 
What sort of person wants to live forever? Oh my God, everybody. I mean, I say that and I recognize that that's a blanket statement, right? First of all, I think there's a distinction between forever and a bit longer. And then there's an even like more, there's a more granular distinction between a bit longer and a bit longer healthily, right? Which is why a lot of people are talking about this notion of health span now rather than lifespan. I mean, people have wanted to live forever, forever. The earliest examples in literature is Gilgamesh. So we go way back where people are looking for the elixir. My favorite example is in Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade, when Harrison Ford and Sean Connery are looking for the Fountain of Youth. People have been searching for eternal life forever. Now, the type of person, that's actually the question that you asked, the type of person who wants to live forever. I think it's a variety of people, but I also think it's people... And what I've found in this research is that it's people who are searching a kind of faith. They're looking for a kind of belief. Ultimately, in many ways, it's it's what religion offers mm-hmm. to us. This idea in, in some religions of eternal life, of crossing over death and you know salvation and all of that kind of thing. So I think some people who want to live forever are those people who are seeking the consolation that they will not suffer and they can have an impact forever. They love life, right? Other people who want to live forever, I think that they're more interested in the process of seeking out the forever living rather necessarily than the actual living forever. Mm -hmm. And I think that the motivation there is in some of them is like the glory of being able to find the fountain of youth, not just owning it for themselves and benefiting from it themselves, but bestowing it unto the rest of us. For other people, the process is about cracking the code. And I found that a lot in this story, that people are really kind of like, they see that as the next big fundamental problem that they believe technology can solve, and they want to have a crack at that. There's motivations across across the lines. Mm. But those are some of the motivations that I really found in this story. That's really interesting, because I was going to ask you about religion, because... My guess would be, you know, you're talking to people who deal with science or tech. So perhaps that sort of mind is, and this might be wrong, but it is perhaps less likely to be involved in religion. That's not always the case, but yeah, Yeah. to have a faith in something. I can't help but be slightly cynical. I mean, that's kind of my nature. Partly because obviously the snake oil salesman idea of being promised something which seems so unlikely but also because you know as a big fan of history and a big fan of literature we've been being warned for years and years if you mess with this there will be unintended consequences yeah 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 in the podcast a lot of the people you were talking to and it could just be because they didn't talk about it so I wondered in the long conversations you had hadn't really got a philosophical standpoint on it yeah absolutely is that something that troubles you You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about consequence, and I don't know why. (laughs) Honestly, I don't know why it's become a total obsession with me, except that because as I've worked through looking at technology and the impacts that it's had on our world, I've thought a lot about the kind of the ethics associated with the decisions that go into the technologies that have become incorporated into our everyday lives and have become mundane. So I've probably seen and recognized as a social scientist, some of the transformations. Also, as a person who is getting older, I am witnessing the Mm. the transformations just simply by living and watching and saying, that's not how things were done in my day. 
for good or for ill. There was a period of time, certainly within the technology space, where people were getting more philosophical around those questions. They were incorporating ethicists into their companies, you know, whether they were just startups or whether they were the big companies. There were ethicists who were hired and were like part of the, the core teams trying to understand the ethical and philosophical implications of even some of the most basic elements of like, if I code something in this way, what is it going to mean? I've seen that kind of fall away over the last maybe 10 years, which is ironic because it's at, it's at this point that technology is getting really interesting in terms of how much we are giving our faith to the ones and the zeros. Before it was very much a man behind the curtain and genuinely like a dude <laughs> living in Silicon Valley behind the curtain. And now even they have kind of turned over to whatever machine learning is happening behind the scenes. And there's a little bit less interest in those philosophical questions. Having said that, there are a lot of people within these communities do like to think very carefully and they are often reared on science fiction or speculative fiction, and they like to imagine and extemporaneize about what the future could be with futuristic technologies. And so those communities do exist. One thing I found in this series is that there is a very strong community who has been thinking about this type of thing for the last 20, 30 years that has emerged from technology philosophers and technology thinkers that because they've been thinking about these types of things for such a long time and they've got answers to all the questions and they've already argued through all of the arguments, they are emerging as kind of thought leaders in this space without us, the rest of us actually having a say in that. So I, I suppose basically my answer is I, was, I, I kind of push back in the notion that there is not a lot of thought going on. It's thought that's happening in a small community in a you know an increasingly large community but within a community but in the day-to-day -day, a lot of those philosophical questions about the consequences are not being practically implemented within the technologies that we are using now and are going to be using moving forward that was a really roundabout answer to your question. It was a great answer. It's such a broad field. Like if we live forever, how are we going to deal with overpopulation? Yeah. If we create, I say we, I'm going to play no role in this whatsoever. <laughs> but if the, the secret to living forever is unlocked, it seems to me that it's going to be available more to the wealthy than to the yeah. poor. We're going to increase the divide between rich and poor. Some people's life expectancy would go up. Potentially, some people's life expectancy would go down as a result. So, yeah, I found the whole thing really unsettling. What I was slightly surprised by was that you spoke to several women. That could well be because you would like to hear women's voices as well. Or it could well be because there's a 50-50 gender split. Is that the case? I don't know why, but it strikes me as a man's aim because I think because we have the menopause, because we go through that, because we age within our bodies in a different way than men age, that perhaps we're just a bit more... I don't know, maybe I'm more good with getting old than a man would be. I, I don't know. I think that's a really interesting thing. And it's something that we thought about as well as we were coming up with this story. I think that there is a split between those 
people who are interested in longevity and health span, extending life in a kind of by 20 years, 50 years, going slowly, slowly, and those who want it to be a silver bullet solution. And actually, if you look at the the whole series, it's a 10 parter. The first five is more women. And that's when we're talking about the slowly, slowly. And the second half is all men. We didn't cast it that way in any way. But, you know, at one point, the, the team sort of looked back and reflected and went, oh, that happened. How interesting is yeah. that? I mean, it also could be an element of the fact of who is actually holding the majority of the wealth in Silicon Valley that does predominantly appear to be men. Silicon Valley is very, very, very male oriented. There have been many attempts to pursue increasing the number of women in STEM. And it's not, you know, a barren wasteland (laughs) over there for women, but definitely male heavy and has a kind of a dominant, this is going to sound very reductive, but kind of male approach to problem solving, more a coder approach to problem solving rather necessarily than a male approach. I think that's unfair to suggest that there's a, that there's that sort of thinking associated with gender. But yeah, I definitely found that there were more scientists who were pursuing the slower approach to extending life, who were women than the people who were, who were seeking those, those big solutions, those, Mm. those, those single sort of switching the code on solutions. I'm not really sure why, like I say, I could pause it. I could like noodle around it. It's always bewildered me that even way back when I was covering computer games for the first part of my career, that there were so few women who were involved in this space, thinking that, you know, at least by incorporating designers who could tell stories in a different way, just by the nature of the fact that they had different life experiences, we'd get better stories. I think similarly for this problem, (laughs) you know, And, and I think that one of the things that we didn't talk about but was very much on my mind was this idea of the longevity community very much focuses on extending life radically or reasonably in quotes and the idea is that if you can live healthily to 120 then you could have three careers you could have this and that they will have to rethink what family and relationships and all these things are and I was like but there is a sell-by date for my ovaries Like, I'm not going to be able to like restart family in the, you know, the second third of my life or even the third third Mm. of my life. Like that's that you get one chance. There still is a kind of temporal part of our lives biologically. And so that has always sort of sat funnily with me in terms of this community, Mm. that they're focusing very much on that and they're not considering what's going on in, in our, you know, our physiological Yeah, that's interesting. I also think that, you know, they say, wherever you go, there you are. In the same way that if my life was extended for another 20 years, would I still potentially on my deathbed regret that I hadn't done stuff because of my nature that I leave stuff to the last minute and I can't be the only person that's like that? Manana, manana. Exactly. Funnily enough, I was talking with my hairdresser, brilliant Japanese woman, and she was like, I don't want to live forever. She likes the finiteness of the the sort of the urgency of having to get things done, if you know what I mean. Mm. Yeah, sure. You might regret things on your deathbed that you haven't done. And perhaps that is something that is that is motivating a lot of the people in this space to, to you know, see if they mm. can extend life. They think that they haven't done as much as they want to. But I think also there's this there's this idea of, well, if there isn't an end. Kind of what's the 
point, mm. the finiteness of the experience of having, say, and we're lucky, you know, to have 80 years, finiteness of that then allows you to structure your life in a way where you're yeah. like, okay, at this point, I now have this that I need to do or that I want to do. And it kind of gives you an opportunity to reflect and say, what don't I want to regret on my deathbed? Yeah. So interesting. And death is the one thing that unites us. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is what, what it is to be human. I mean, I can remember when Steve Jobs died. I can remember a lot of the conversation amongst people I knew was, you can have all of the money in the world and it can't save you. You know, right. if you're real, you're real. Uh, yeah. And I think that this is part of like the impoverished nature, as, as one of my contributors described, of this notion of living forever, or at least living longer, is who is going to benefit from yeah. that? Already, we have extraordinary power disparities that are spoken and unspoken. Sure, if you are wealthy and in power and can, you know, flit from job to job, you might be like, hey, this could be cool. I could, you know, do this and that and the other. But then there are other people who, who can't do that, who don't have the opportunity, whether it's by dint of where they were born, how they were born, who they were born. They're trapped in poverty. They're trapped in slavery. They're trapped in really terrible situations that make them think, you know what? I don't really like this live forever idea. And then also there's been some really interesting research that's come out of Oxford that says that this whole live forever thing is it's really culturally bound for those faiths and those belief systems that believe in reincarnation. Do you actually want to live forever? Because mm. you're not actually going to progress, you know, that you're not going to get to, to where it is that you want. Yeah. And so I think that wasn't undercurrent that hasn't yet broken through the hype and the enthusiasm within Silicon Valley and within, well, particularly Silicon Valley. It's the opportunity to choose if you wish to or not. And we do get to that at some point in this series in a surprising way, actually. Um, this notion of, I wouldn't necessarily want to say today that I want to live forever, but I want to be able to choose every once in a while. That's one, one of our contributors says. I'd like to be able to like have the choice Mm. And sure, having the choice is always great in life. But, you know, that's enormously privileged. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Privileged. <laughs> and by contrast, the ability to choose when you die is becoming more widespread. Yes. Which I think yes. just makes this all the more. It's all so interesting. Should we talk about the people who are injecting their own children's plasma or should we talk about post-humanism? What would you like to, to talk about? <laughs> You know, it's been really interesting how many people want to talk about Brian Johnson and injecting his own plasma, which to me, I think Brian's a very fascinating case study, but he's he's like the least interesting <laughs> out of all of this. I mean, he's incredible because he is so motivated to extend his life and he's making himself this human guinea pig for all of the longevity, like research stuff. And yeah, it's. When I say it out loud, I realize quite how extreme it is that mm. like injecting your own child's plasma into your body. Like I have a kid. We joke, right? During the process of this, <laughs> I've been saying to my kid, I've been like, right, so, you know, I'm feeling a bit peaky. Let's have some of your plasma. <laughs> but actually doing it, I recognize that that is quite extreme. But I think because I've been sitting in this for such a long time, I'm like, yeah, yeah, young plasma, whatever. It was young plasma that got me into this story in the first place. This was in 2017 when I first learned about injecting young plasma. The post-human stuff is the stuff that really blows my mind because in many ways it was the thing that surprised me the most because I thought it had been discontinued. I knew about it in the early 2000s. I knew that people were talking about this sort of stuff, but I thought 
oh, you know, they're fringe. They're even more fringe than the fringe. They'll just disappear and go away. And as a technology reporter who has been studying the psychology of online communities, the thing that sort of kicked me in the butt about this and made me kind of go, oh, of course, of course, is that it didn't go away. And in fact, like other conspiracy theories or whatever, you know, other types of imaginings that we just think are going to go away because nobody's paying attention to yeah. them. What the internet's done is it's given people an enormous voice and an enormous community that keep these ideas going until such time as they kind of start to snowball and they gather more and more people in. And then the next thing you know, people are genuinely thinking that there's going to be an artificial intelligence that's going to merge with humanity and that we're going to store our our artificial identities, our digital identities on a server on Mars and live forever. And it's at that point that I'm like, I can't believe I missed that. I can't believe I missed the on-ramp mm. of that by dismissing it early in the 2000s. It's a real favorite of Charlie Brooker, Black Mirror. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. It is the stuff of dystopia. But I, I just wonder, yeah. where does your joy come from? How do you get a hug? How do you stroke a dog? How do you have sex? How do you eat an ice cream? All of the stuff that gives you joy in life, whatever yeah. it is. All I would say is it doesn't seem like life as I recognize it, even though exactly. it, is perhaps, it is perhaps technically life. That's something that I come back to as a psychologist a lot about not even this idea of like coding ourselves into a server farm and on Mars, even with some of the basics of technologies that we use today is the leanness of our interaction not in a kind of let's let's ban all of this technology because i feel like we, we you know, spent the 2000s talking about the, the impoverished nature of mm. technologies and we know that we can like create really rich relationships and and all of that kind of thing through technology so that's that's just a a rabbit hole it's a it's a it's an avenue it's an alley to go down but i i definitely think that once we're talking about kind of like bringing ourselves into the cloud there are some elements of human psychology and human experience that we cannot then code. Personally, I feel this, that we cannot then code. And in many ways, that's my faith. I believe that there's something in humans, sort of a fundamental experience mm -hmm. that is not something that can be reduced to a one or a zero. I have many friends who believe otherwise. And we have great debates and great conversations. And that's our dinner party. So if you want to come home. <laughs> <laughs> if you, you want to sit it, come there. The notion of becoming post-human from what, from my understanding and speaking with some of the people who believe in this philosophy, and I would argue belief system, is that at that point, we are post-human. We are no longer human. Mm. We are the convergence and the joyful to them convergence of an artificial intelligence which surpasses our human intelligence and our humanity. Mm. And there are technologists and companies out there who have been trying for many years and who now for various reasons to do with technology and the advance of technology and the acceleration of technology, they're bearing fruit, some of these ideas. They are trying to, you know, map the human brain. They're trying to map all of the cells in the body. They're trying to do all of these things. What I will urge, though, is that this is a subset of the people who are imagining that, that we will live forever. They, they, 
this is still a little ways off. Mm. This is still some ways off. And I don't think you and I are going to have to worry about the fact that we can't give each other a hug yeah. in a future in which we're like on a server farm. The notion would be, I'm assuming that there will be some kind of haptic technology that our, our neurotransmitters and uh, would will have been like reverse engineered to the degree that we will feel as if we are experiencing hugs or love or sex or any of those other things. We just simply physically will not be. Their argument, of course, is that already that's kind of what we do. We have these kind of meat bodies anyway, and the meat mm. bodies they're controlled by the the gray matter and the you know the experiences and the the feelings and the nerves and everything else is already kind of a conceptualization, as yeah. it were, of our consciousness. Uh, and all we need to do is kind of take our brains mm. out, put it into a rather than a glass jar into a, a server farm. And then we'll kind of experience that same thing. It is not my faith. <laughs> but I, that's kind of where they're they imagine. Because, of course, y- you and I grew up before the Internet. Yeah. And I can see actually just in small things either reading study or just anecdotally from from young people I know that actually they identify more with their online persona way more than I ever could because they've become more their online self whether or not their online self is a fair representation of who they are that's a different oh absolutely non-digital natives start to die off it will seem (laughs) a lot more appealing to people I think that though, like when when it comes to the online identity, and I've I've done so much research on this, and I've done like so much on other series on Digital Human, for example, which is also a Radio Four series. I've spoken extensively about the online identity, and my even my relationship with my online identity um, has fluctuated and changed over my lifetime. Sometimes I'm much more sort of offline reserved, and I want to stay. I want to stay more offline. Sometimes I want to be like very, very online. Um, I remember when I first, I mean, this is, we're talking 1999. So this is a good long time ago. And I first started covering computer games on channel four. And I remember web forums were getting really popular. And I remember making a conscious decision at that point to flood the web with images of myself and information of myself, thinking I don't want other people to own that image. I don't Mm -hmm. want other people to kind of tell my story sort of recognizing it in many ways as a as a platform but then other times I want to pull way back and I don't want to do that but our online and our offline selves are intrinsically integrated you know think about the way that reputation can be made online or offline and you know they're just they're seamlessly entwined that's something going back to this idea of unintended consequences that's something that we never really truly imagined well, certainly we couldn't have imagined the way that that's impacted us and that's that sort of played out. Um, and we certainly wouldn't have imagined that the code that has created that would have such an enormous impact because it allows and disallows certain ways of presenting yourself or being yourself or being authentic or not being authentic, all of those different types of things. And so, you know, I think that we know a lot more now and certainly while we're not digital natives, those who are also are a lot more knowledgeable about the ways that they are comfortable representing themselves and being represented online. And we have a lot more say than we did because we are all native to this space. And that's something that actually gives me hope moving forward, which is that 
sure, we might all end up being ones and zeros in a server farm <laughs> on Mars, but we also might not because enough people might say, actually, that isn't what I want to do. Or, you know, I know how that bit of social media makes me feel now. And I'm not, you know, I don't want to go in that direction. Yeah. Like we, we are more technologically literate, I think is really what I'm trying to say than we were 20 years ago. And although, although the, the kids these days <laughs> spend more time on TikTok, they also are learning all kinds of different ways of being and ways of expressing themselves that are probably very similar to how you and I did, um, how you and I created things. It's just for a much, much larger audience or potential audience than we had, like me going down to the mall. It wasn't the internet that was potentially going to be watching me fall into the <laughs> fountain or whatever, whatever it was. I thank God every day that people didn't have camera phones <laughs> when I was that age. Totally, totally. Yeah. And so, you know, I think that it, it could be a kind of like a generational creep almost that this happens. But at the same time, it could also be a generational pushback. Thank you, Alex. This has been so interesting. Oh, thank you. I've had such a good time. It's so rare I get interviewed. So I'm <laughs> delighted. <laughs> I am joined by Donna Freed, writer, broadcaster, podcaster, translator, and author of the new book, Duplicity. Donna, thank you very much for joining me. It is my absolute pleasure. Thank you. The blurb on your book is like, I sent it to my colleagues and I was like, what what do you think about this? Do you think it's interesting? (laughs) And uh, my colleague was like, yes, yes, I do. (laughs) Get an interview with her. Great. Okay, so here you are. Could you tell me a little bit to start off with about the book, please, Donna? Okay, so Duplicity is a family memoir, an adoptive family memoir with a true crime twist. The tagline is Duplicity, my mother's plural secrets. I was adopted and I have had two amazing mothers, each in their own right. And they were both quite secretive, as it turns out. The story unfolded for me in my life very much like it will for the reader. I wasn't told I was adopted by my parents. I was told by my sister when I was six. And it was never mentioned in our family again. I brought it up to my brother later on. He confirmed it. My mother and I spoke about it in two sentences when I was 18. So this was something that was seminal to my life, seminal to my understanding of my life, especially as a child, that was completely went unsaid and went processed by me alone from the age of six. So it was always something I wanted to figure out and write about. And our childhood was really strange. People talk about preppers and hoarders. And my mom was a little bit like that, but I think it was mostly because she was depressed. There are interesting things I discovered that are sort of in the zeitgeist now, but were I didn't have the words for growing up. So I think about inherited trauma. Mm. I think about uh, depression. 
And she was depressed at the time. But from my point of view, all I could see was that my mother spent the majority of her time in bed. I used to describe it as, you know, my mom spent 10 years in bed. And she only got out to make loveless meals from hoarded dry goods or yell at us. And my relationship with her evolved. And she got a lot better. My relationship with my mother changed immeasurably. She got better. We got closer. I was adamant, having gone through that experience of who I was, having been ripped up at age six, and having had to rebuild that back myself, I was determined that I was going to figure this out. I was going to create a relationship with my mother. And we did. And it was always something I wanted to write about. And I, I, I did dabble in writing about it a bit. But then my mother died. And prior to that, my relationship with my adoptive mother, it maybe been a bit too rocky at first. And then still a bit tenuous and new and fresh and precious that I didn't want to risk it by rocking the boat by looking for my birth mother. Mm -hmm. Also for adopted people, looking for your birth parents is a risky business. Looking for your birth parents, first of all, risks rejection. They did it to you once, they could do it again. The second risk factor is you don't know what the circumstances were, why you were given up for adoption. And to think it might be rape or incest or criminality of some kind. It's this very precarious paradoxical thing. And it brings you back to that same moment that they're the ones in charge, not you. Mm. They decided to give you up for adoption. Other people decided for you. You know, your adoptive parents changed your name. You've had no say in any of this. You were the high point and low point of other people's lives. You're the collateral damage. And as much as I had reclaimed my life and remade myself in my own image, well, then I've got to sort of put that on hold and maybe see that I was just a biological link, that I was exactly in someone else's image. And that was very threatening to me. But like I said, my mother died and my son was about six years old, about the same time I was when I first found out I was adopted. Mm -hmm. And he asked me if I had a picture of that other mother, that other mother that couldn't take care of me, which was how I put, you know, I was adopted. And so that sort of his curiosity and just being purely curious sort of helped me bypass my reticence in looking for my birth parents. What I found out was, <laughs> shall we get into that? Sure, yes. Yeah. So, so what you found out, your parents' story is absolutely fascinating, but it is also kind of bonkers. So do you, you want to tell us a little bit about that? I found out that my parents were quite famous con artists who had faked my mother's death by a drowning for the double indemnity insurance money. 
and then got busted in an early use of wiretaps. And my mother had been hiding out in what turned out to be my hometown. So this to me was, again, just like when I was six, seismic information. But I have to say, I was relieved. When I said, oh, your parents were criminals. I'm like, well, one, they weren't very good at it. <laughs> it has to be said. Mm. Two, they weren't murderers or rapists. And I don't know, sort of in the criminal world, I guess con artists, you know, like Anna Delvey, you know, are sort of considered, you know, the rock stars of, of criminals. It was also at such a remove. I didn't live through the real life consequences of their criminality. So it did have the distance of time. And I don't know, it just seemed kind of cool. Think, Especially my. Do you, do you think you didn't live through the, the impact of their criminality? Because arguably, this is the reason why, why you were adopted, right? Yes, it was because what I found out, uh, one of the reasons that, and the major reason why I was given up for adoption um, was that my grandmother and my mother felt that because it had been such a widely publicized crime, Mm. um, it was in papers from Aberdeen to Spain. The bump was in the New York Times. My mother's face with my cheekbones was plastered all over the New York papers. It was a salacious story. It was juicy. And it was a story that kept giving because she was first reported drowned and presumed dead. Then they thought he killed her and she was pregnant. Then she bobbed up like a pregnant witch And she was the Jezebel. Mm. And, you know, my father, who was married with four children, you know, his wife was the the poor wretch. My mother was the homewrecker. He was the cad. Yeah, I mean, it just kept going. Three years later, they follow it up with stories. You know, and and Mm. 1991, they followed up with a story. Um, so it just kept, they kept bringing it up and it was felt that it was in my best interest that I'd be brought up in a loving home and away from this, you know, the glare of the negative publicity, um, that really surrounded, surrounded the case and my mother who can say, but I, I have concluded that, I do think, I mean, again, inherited trauma is one of those things we talk about now, Mm. but I hadn't been aware of. But I think my birth mother's shame and the family's shame, I think would have engulfed her parenting and engulfed my childhood. Your birth mother's actions were incredibly extreme. I wondered if you had any kind of sense of because obviously you you were reunited with her in the end I wonder if you had any sense of what drove her to them did you 
ever find out? And were you able to, because we talked before about, you know, th- this idea about whether or not you lived with the consequences of her actions. Were you angry with her for them? Or, or were you able to kind of like forgive that in the end? I was reunited with her. And part of it for me, upon hearing this story, I mean, my son was, you know, in the full thrall of mm. pirates and, you know, highwaymen. So, you know, when he first heard the story and that my birth father was actually in prison at the time of my birth, he was sent to jail. My mother was not. She was given a suspended sentence. But my father, because he was, because he had prior convictions and for fraud, he was jailed. Mm. My son thought it was absolutely hilarious. He was like, fantastic. I was relieved because on one hand, like I said, they weren't murderers. They weren't. Mm. And also, like Jeanette Winterson, I was absolutely fearful that my birth parents might be just incredibly boring, that it might be this humdrum affair that it was just for no better reason than eh, we couldn't be bothered, some tawdry affair, mm. some, you know what I mean? Yeah. So that all this sturm und drang was for something, and for something quite dramatic, I appreciated. So I, I liked the story and also at the same time realized where I get my own oversense, overblown sense of drama from. <laughs> <laughs> perhaps, uh, perhaps it is nature, not nurture. But so when when I first met my birth mother, I too was sort of consumed with curiosity about this story. And what made you do this? Like you faked your own death. Are you nuts? And I realized that I was looking at this story with the same Brilliant eyes, the same salacious desire for these details and these stereotypes and these tropes. And there was a woman behind this. And actually, she was quite a broken woman. That my birth father, Alvin, had been the love of her life. It's not everybody you fake your own death for. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and that she was broken by this because Alvin went to prison. She went back home. She gave up her baby. You know, the whole dream just went kaboom. Because apparently, according to her, Alvin convinced her to fake her own death and they were going to run off to Spain. Mm and raise me and live in Mediterranean splendor. And there was a fair amount of money involved at the time. The insurance payout would have been about $300,000 in today's money, which mm. that's, you know, that's skip off, skip off into the future money. But I did also realize that she was crazy in love with this man. It was an, an amour fou. You know, it was just, obviously, she knew better. She was leaving her parents 
her sister thinking she was dead. Mm. She was literally never going to see them again. She just walked out of her life. But I also came to think that this was really a pseudocide, which is people who fake their own deaths Mm -hmm. or pseudocides. Pseudocide by proxy. Most pseudocides are men. And in this case, I think it really was Alvin faking his own death over her dead body, (laughs) sort of using her body. Because a pseudocide, you have to be, you have to lay low. You can't be the center of attention. And this story, Alvin was the dramatis persona front and center. You know, they faked her death by a drowning. And he's found, you know, they go out on a boat, sunny afternoon. He's found clinging to the boat, sobbing, you know, diving, you know, desperately to find this woman. And then 39 days later goes to goes to claim the insurance money. So I did forgive her because who hasn't been crazy in love like that? Who hasn't done something stupid? You wanted the details and, and you were like, oh, this is a great story and blah, blah, blah. And, and the book is, it's a memoir, but it's also kind of like a true crime book. True crime as a genre has faced some criticism that it is sort of, you know, um, among its many criticisms that it is kind of exploitative. Obviously, this is actually your own story. So that's a, a bit different. But I wonder if writing the book and thinking about your own family and your own background in that way had sort of given you any particular thoughts or insights or feelings into the genre in in more general terms? Yes, well, when I was talking about living through the real consequences, Mm. as I said before, my father was married with four children. So a while after I met my birth mother, unfortunately, my birth father had passed away in New York, very close to where I was living, prior to me starting to look. So I didn't get to meet him. But I have met some of my half-brothers. And they were living with their father and their mother when he was arrested, sent to jail. They became impoverished because of it. They remember the night he was arrested, Mm -hmm. which is quite violent. Mm. Um, They did live through what that's like. And while I lived through the consequences by being given up for adoption, I didn't live through those criminal consequences. It was more the personal fallout um, on Mira's behalf. We are all fascinated by true crime. Some people blame, oh, the media, you know, really amplifies this. I have to look at my own, in my own heart and in my own conscience, because when I'm rubbernecking at the accident, that's not the media making me do it. Mm. That's all of us slowing down. And that's all of us thinking, oh, God, there by the grace of God go I, because we will know something like that in our lives, because we fear it and dread it, and we're waiting for the sword of Damocles to fall because we hope it won't happen. It's not the prettiest part of human nature, but it is a part of human nature. 
and I don't think it's going to change. I, I do understand the glorification of criminals is getting super creepy. My son's name is Dexter. And so that whole show of like, mm. it's okay to be a serial killer if you're killing other serial killers. But then we're glorifying a serial killer. That part is problematic. And I think that's pretty new. Although then I think about Jack the Ripper and I think, well, is it new? We've well, been fascinated with him mm. for long time. So I don't know where I stand, <laughs> but it did really it did really make me think about it and think about my own reasons why I'm interested and fascinated. And I am, I have to say. Okay. Well, Donna, it is a fascinating story and it is available now. Uh, listeners can buy it now. It's published by Muswell Press. Uh, it says on on the front cover, Genevieve Gaunt of the Spectator says, "I look forward to seeing it on Netflix, and maybe, maybe, Donna, maybe we will." Where can we follow you to keep up to date with with what you're up to? I am on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. I am at Donna Freed on Insta, and I think on. Twitter, I'm at Freed underscore Donna, but I'm easily found also through Radio Gorgeous. Can you just tell us very quickly a little bit about Radio Gorgeous? Because you were telling me before and it sounds absolutely fascinating. It sounds not dissimilar to Standard Issue. Talk to me, Donna. I was going to say, Radio Gorgeous is like Standard Issue's little sister. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, again, an all-female podcast, mostly, I would say it's about 90 6% female podcast celebrating women's voices and women's contributions to the arts and well-being. It's pretty much what we do. Interview authors and artists, performers, and women who are loving what they do and define success by doing, not achieving. Brilliant. Well, I presume you can listen to that wherever you get your podcast from? That's the one. Excellent. Donna, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. You play ball like a girl. Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, that time of the week where we experience the classic roller coaster of emotion that comes with all things women's sport. I'm not really sure how to describe this one. Kind of like a reverse shit sandwich, so... Let's get the first layer over and done with. Fresh news from the Spanish women's team. As you know, Luis Rubiales has stepped down, Jorge Vilda has been sacked and players have been boycotting the team again. In fact, 39 players are boycotting the national side as of Friday. He said they would not return until they felt that they were in a, and I quote, safe place, issuing conditions that should be met before they would rejoin the squad. That is a pretty tough situation for Monse Tome, the new head coach and first ever woman to hold the position. It's a tough situation for her to inherit. She has now called up 15 of those boycotting players to the Spanish squad for the upcoming Nations League, but not Jenny Hermoso who I'm sure you will all recall is the woman at the the centre of this new controversy, not that there weren't controversies to begin with. This is apparently, she says, to protect Hermoso. But Hermoso asked the question quite rightly, I would say, protect me from what and from whom? If she needs protecting, then the Royal Spanish Football Federation have not come good on their promise to provide a safe environment, have they? 
Now, I fear that this is going to run and run and really what needs to happen is that someone needs to listen to these players, don't they? When that will happen, who knows? Because this has been going on a while now. It does feel like a particularly exhausting week to be a woman, huh? I mean, when doesn't it? Okay, what I'm going to do, rather than give you the shit sandwiches, serve up a double helping of shit up the top because... It's nice to finish with some good news. So here's some more bad news from the last week in women's sport, which is that two-time Grand Slam winner Simona Halep has been banned from competitive tennis for four years for anti-doping breaches. Halep was provisionally suspended back in October 2022, and it has taken the best part of a year to reach this verdict, which really is too long. She tested positive for use of Roxadustat, I don't know if that's how you say it, during last year's US Open, a drug which stimulates red blood cell production and effectively speeds up recovery. Though she said that this happened by accident by taking a contaminated supplement. The independent tribunal accepted this, but said that the concentration of the drug found in her urine sample would not have resulted from this. They also found changes in her biological passport, which they said would likely have been caused by doping. Halep has always maintained her innocence and says that she will challenge the verdict at the court of arbitration for sport. But if it's upheld, she'll not be able to play tennis again competitively until the 7th of October 2026, which is just after her 35th birthday. These are real prime years in terms of her career. So that's a disaster, basically, as far as she's concerned. Now, I just find it very, very sad. I loved Halep as a player. She was fantastic to watch. And I feel like she's dealt with a lot of crap in her career. I'm not in a position, obviously, to say whether three experts have, have got the verdict right or not. But to me, it's sad whichever way you look at it. So let's finish on a high by looking at data released last week by the Women's Sports Trust regarding viewing figures for women's sport over the last year. And I'm delighted to say that the research found that in the last year, the average time spent watching women's sport increased by 28% and the total viewing hours increased by 19%. So this data is up to the 20th of August this year, which is obviously given a huge boost by the Women's World Cup. But remember, we did have the Euros last year. So... It doesn't explain it all away by any stretch, but it also makes the point that if it's available, if it's there for people to watch, people will indeed watch it. The research found that the Netball World Cup and the Women's Ashes were also big draws in terms of viewers. The best news, I think, is that the Women's World Cup attracted a younger female demographic this year, which shows that things could potentially look very different in sports viewership in the future. And also that sponsors are getting wind of this with more cosmetic and personal care brands wanting to advertise during match breaks. Now, I'm not saying this is brilliant, that men get beer and car adverts and we get makeup or whatever, but I do think that it is telling in terms of companies realising the potential investment there and investment in women's sport is always going to be a good thing. I, well, you know, as long as we're not talking Saudi Arabia by women's sport, <laughs> which would be a bad thing, just just to be clear on that. But anyway, you know what I'm saying. Let's hope to see similar progress in the WSL and the Women's Championship going forward. That's all from me this week, and I will be back next time with more women's sport. <laughs> Welcome to Rated or Dated. Hannah, which film did you have us watch this week that made me wonder, is this the best line of work for someone with such a distinctive physical feature? This week, we watched one of 1993's Big Beasts, The Fugitive, 
which grossed $369 million at the box office, got nominated for seven Oscars and has a 96% on Rotten Tomatoes. And yet, I've never met anyone who lists it as one of their favourite films or indeed suggests to me that we watch it in the last 25 years. (laughs) Jen, have you seen this before? I have. Now, this is going to sound a bit odd, but bear with me. I'm pretty sure, she certainly didn't mention it last night, but I'm pretty sure this would have been like kind of one for the mums back in the day. I don't know, because I watched it with my dad. I also think it's one for the dads. I think it's one for everyone, basically. Yeah. <laughs> As I'm sure we'll go <laughs> on to end. discuss. <laughs> yeah. It just throws away rest I feel like script. Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones would both have been like kind of pretty hot mum stuff back in 1993. Right. I'm not saying that's what I think, Hannah. I'm just saying I think Kath probably watched it back in 1993. And I also think that my brother, Michael, was in like a bit of a Star Wars obsession era and wanted to watch everything that Harrison Ford ever did. Right. I feel like he was quite into it, but probably for very different reasons to Kath. Okay. I saw it when... I mean, I didn't live at home at this point, but I must have been around there. My dad bought it home from the video shoppers. Yeah, the film du jour. Yeah, I've I've watched it, definitely. I didn't remember much about it, but I have definitely watched it. Interestingly, given it's got some really sort of what what you would describe as iconic scenes, I've never thought about it again in the last 25 years. I haven't. Who has? (laughs) You know, the one thing that I was like, oh, I do remember this, was the font at the beginning that's like, this is epic basically (laughs) i've got something on that it's based on the 1960s tv series of the same name which may or may not have been based on the real life story of dr sam shepherd and while it stars a number of almost famous actors including joey pants jane lynch and julianne moore all focus and indeed character development is on its two stars Harrison Ford <laughs> and Tommy Lee Jones, whose first names are much bigger than their surnames in the title credits, as if it's saying, come on, you know these lads, everything is going to be all right. And indeed, it was all right yeah. for Tommy Lee Jones, certainly, who got an Oscar, a Golden Globe and a spin-off film, US Marshall. He got an Oscar? Yes, he did. This does not feel like an Oscars film, does it? I think it might be easy to think it's just Tommy Lee Jones being Tommy Lee Jones in it. But I think this was the first point at which Tommy Lee Jones Tommy Lee was jo- being Tommy Lee Jones. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I think it was a, a big deal at the time. Hasn't he done another film that is basically the same plot as well that has Kevin Costner in it? Uh, is that US Marshals? No, I think it's something else. Where it's he interesting because is- Kevin Costner was one of the people who was suggested to play the Harrison Ford role. But... Anyway. I think there is a film from the 90s around the same, the same sort of like the era of Tommy Lee Jones. Um, <laughs> and it's, I have a feeling that he plays a detective of some sort who is trying to hunt like a killer. Maybe he actually is a killer, but like there's a little boy in it as well. What is it called? I'll Google it, Hannah. I've no idea. Would you like a couple of fun facts yes. about the making of The Fugitive, Jen? Yes, I would, Okay. Yeah. So that train crash was shot in a single take using a real train and cost $1 million to film. 
Wow. And according to the Great Smoky Mountain Scenic Railroad, you can still see the wreckage of that crash on one of its routes, which I'm sure is an interesting enough selling point for some of its patrons, but presumably means that Hollywood turned up, caused carnage, and then just left it there. That sounds unlikely, Hannah. <laughs> yeah, just fuck it. Just leave it. Just mm-hmm. leave it all there and just move on. We're making a film. We haven't got time to tidy that up. We've only got a million dollars. Fun fact number two, the chase scene during the St. Patrick's Day parade in Chicago was filmed during the actual parade held on that year, on March the 17th, obviously, 1993. But hang on, here's an even better fact. It wasn't the only film being made in that very parade on that very day, with Michael Apted's Blink also being filmed simultaneously in exactly the same place. Can you even do that? Don't you have to ask people if they mind being in it and stuff? Presumably they did ask people if they minded being in it and people went, sure, I'll be in it. I mean, some of them were dressed up as leprechauns. I mean, they clearly (laughs) don't give a shit what image of themselves goes into the world. Oh, dear. Shall we do some plot? Yes. Yes. After taking his wife to a convention for smarmy men... (laughs) Dr. Richard Kimball comes home to find she's been murdered and the police blame him because they are corrupt and lazy and, you know, also because it's almost always the husband. Jen, would you like to know if there was an uptick in men claiming their wife was killed by an unknown intruder in the wake of this film's popularity? Sure, why not? Yeah. Yeah, me too. But sadly, I asked Google and it basically said, I don't know, which is the first time I think that's ever happened to me that Google hasn't known the answer. I'm going to assume there was. I don't know. I mean, it's worth a try, isn't it? You know? <laughs> Given that, unlike the plot of The Fugitive, we all know it's always the husband. Yeah. Anyway, after Dr. Richard Kimball's <laughs> trial, he manages to escape on the way to prison, something that's aided by not one, but two major transport disasters. Mm. Another prisoner also escapes, but is forgotten about until he's not, and then he is again. But here come the US Marshals, led by Tommy Lee, <laughs> who always gets his man. But Kimball turns out to have some good luck, not least when several people casually unrobe in front of him, allowing him to steal their clothes. And he really needs that help, given that some of his best hiding ideas include being inside a speeding ambulance with flashing lights and also doing a shift at his local ER. In the film's most famous scene, the chase sees Dr. Richard Kimball go over a spillway to his death. But wait, he's not dead. How did he survive that? No, really, how did he survive that? It's the film's biggest question after why aren't either of them sliding down the banisters during the chase down the stairs at City Hall? Soon, the marshals work out that the doctor isn't running. He's actually trying to find the one-armed man who really killed his Mm. wife, which he does after his dreams tell him where to go. (laughs) And it all works out fine in the end, except for the dead wife. And it turns out that his smarmy best mate is a wrong'un. Who could have guessed that? Who could have guessed that? The end. So, Jen. Yeah. One of the reasons that I think this film hasn't really dated that badly goes to the point of that train crash 
was a real freaking train crash. Mm. It's in that sweet spot of sort of late 80s, early 90s, where they weren't using CGI and therefore the CGI has not aged really badly. Would you yeah. agree? Yes, I would agree. But I also think, Hannah, it's it's a timeless tale. It's a <laughs> timeless tale. You know, wronged man, framed framed for a crime he didn't commit. Look at the A-Team. Look at The Fugitive, in fact, the series. You know, mm. it's a remake of something. And, it, you know, it's... Like I say, tale as old as time, Hannah. Just brilliant. Lovely stuff. (laughs) One of the first things, about halfway through, I said to my mum, I did wonder at the beginning why he had such shit hair and such a massive beard, but I've realised it is literally so that he can, like, get a haircut and and shave his beard off and become instantly unrecognisable, isn't it? And my mum was like, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. The hair's a plot device. (laughs) There is a lot going on in this. Mm. Almost every action set piece could be yeah. the bit where he gets caught. Yeah. There's loads of set pieces. Yeah. But it doesn't go too far in the sense that if you watch something now like, I don't know, one of those Marvel type films, there's yeah. so many set pieces that it becomes ridiculous. It becomes, oh, here's a massive fight. So the next fight has to be even more massive. So the next fight has to be even more massive. So by the time you get to the end, it has to be something that every single person who's ever starred in a Marvel film appears in because it's like escalating. Whereas I don't think that happens there. I think all of them are sort of self-contained and exciting enough while they're happening. Is he going to get caught now? Is he going to get caught now? And then they move on to the next thing and it never feels like it's got nowhere to go or nowhere left to go, I think. It's just completely ridiculous. Like it's just it is totally ridiculous. Ridiculous, but it, like it's ridiculous in quite a charming way. There's not really anything about it that's too towards the end where you're like, okay, right now we've discovered the motivation behind this killing. Can you hear that? No. What is it? Is thunder. It thunder? Mm, mm. Oh, I can hear it. Well, both the cats are coming to sit on my lap. Sorry. Carry on. Once you find out what the motivation for it is, and then suddenly it becomes like a completely different but also exactly the same film. I'm just like, mm. you just didn't need to add this like rogue pharmaceutical plot in this. Like it's <laughs> you, you just didn't need to do that. But I love that you've had a try. I love that you've you've shoehorned that plot into it. Fantastic. It's ridiculous, but it's ridiculous in the way that I remember big blockbuster films being. In the 90s, which is like ridiculous as in, I'm sure none of the plot actually holds water. But I don't really care that none of it holds water because it's just like big and exciting. And I didn't hate this. I have to say I didn't hate it. I found it infinitely watchable. (laughs) Really, really watchable. And Tommy Lee Jones is really good in it. And like I say, there's quite a fun level of, oh, look, there's Julianne Moore. Oh, look, there's uh, Jane Lynch going on in it. I feel like... Basically, someone at Warner Brothers has gone, I want to have Tommy Lee Jones and I want to have Harrison Ford in a film together. Let's just find a way to make that happen. Yeah. Basically. And I'm here for it because, as yeah. as discussed, they were kind of like stars du jour back in uh, 1993. So I'm absolutely here for it. I, I was thinking, like, oh, God, is it going to be a bit... It's way sillier than I remember it being. Like, it is a lot more ridiculous than I remember it being. I remember it being, like, a bit serious. Like, it felt like a serious film at the time. And, and it maybe it, it probably is a serious film, but it did not feel particularly serious when I was watching it yesterday. I was like, this is just very silly. Very silly. I feel like it's a gendered film 
in mm. the way that all of the women that are in it basically serve no yeah. oh, real yeah. purpose. None of them Everyone... have any kind of character whatsoever. But that said, nobody apart from Dr. Yeah. Richard Kimball <laughs> and Tommy Lee. name is Dr. Richard Kimball. <laughs> so I don't think it's necessarily a snub to women in it. I think it's a snub to all other characters. Nobody else really matters in this. But I think... Especially now we know a lot more and people discuss a lot more about who kills women. I think it's much more of a conversation. I feel like that for a man watching this, there's the what if I got accused of killing my wife element going on Mm. that they can perhaps identify with Kimball. Whereas women watching this think... Oh God, it's another way for me to die. (laughs) Oh look, a woman's been murdered... And she is utterly irrelevant to her own story and disappears out of this. And in fact, the only person that matters is her husband. And like I say, women are murdered by their husbands all the fucking time. I have to say that I felt that the... um, Not wanting to sound like some sort of uh, incel or or indeed Russell Brand uh, defender at the moment, but I have to say, I felt that the the evidence against Dr. Richard Kimball was weak at best. (laughs) It did seem to hang on there being his own fingerprints in his own house and her having gone, Richard, as she was dying. It was was flimsy evidence on which to, uh, to, you know, execute a man. Yeah, agreed. And basically everyone in it is an awful person. He's like not. He's, he's, he saves the guy from the crash, but then yeah. the other guy tries to take credit for it. and Saves yeah. Charles' life. Yeah. Uh, in the When he's masquerading as someone else in his own place of... In his own place of work? Is it his own yeah. place of work? I don't know. He's a good guy, Dr. Richard Kimball. Good Still guy. Still to save children, as you say. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I think one of the things that maybe doesn't translate quite as well over here, or maybe it does, I don't know, is the whole thing of, because we just have the police here. Yeah. And they have so many different sort of varying arms of the police yeah. over there, which I can see the upside of having a de- sort of decentralised police force in that sense. I know that, that there's a bad side to it, which is, you know, corruption mm. happens quite often at a local level. I don't think the first time I watched this, I really knew what the US Marshal Service was. And I don't think this experience explains it. I don't think I know now, Hannah. I thought well. he was FBI. That's really all I'd say. He's the Marshal Service. The right. Marshals basically deal with criminals once they're into the justice system. So the police catch people and then if people jump bail, the Marshals deal with it. If people escape from prison, the Marshals deal with it. Prison transfers, that's under the Marshals. They work for the courts as opposed to work for the police force. But they have, because of their long history with catching outlaws mm. back in the Wild West. They have a real sort of swinging dick persona. What I say about Tommy Lee Jones is, not in the same way as, uh, God, who is it in Indecent Proposal? Who's the old guy? In- <laughs> Robert Redford. Robert Redford, right. So not in the same way as that, but I remember watching this film and being like, Tommy Lee Jones is as old as time. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen an older man ever. And uh, looking into it yesterday, I was like, he's six years older than I am now. And that disgusts me. He's 47 in this film. And I'm I am now I am now 41. So I was just like, that's really hard to take, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. Oh, and Mickey's a big fan of Tommy Lee Jones. In, in that, that way? Sense. 
I think in a ways, I think in a ways. I mean, if you're listening, Mickey, and I'm doing you wrong here, I apologise. We invite you to defend yourself in next week's podcast. <laughs> what you said at the top about, you know, a tale as old as time, this does keep getting remade. There was like a TV version of it in Asia that had Ken Watanabe as the fugitive. And there was some sort of thing that had my favourite and not yours, Kiefer Sutherland, in it, which was sort of based on a similar yeah. thing. So, yeah, it is a story that keeps keeps doing the rounds. The story that just keeps giving us because it's yeah. perfect, Hannah. What, there's nothing wrong with this story. It's brilliant. I think if they made it now, they would fall victim to the, you know, increasing amounts of drama to up the drama. It's quite dramatic, isn't it? I think it is dramatic, but yeah. I, think, I think this is the right mm. level of dramatic. Uh, whereas I think now people feel the need to constantly one-upmanship drama and say, well, they had a train crash. We've got to have a, something plummeting from space. It's two hours and ten minutes long, and I don't think it seemed... like I, It was acceptable to me. Yeah. The length of it didn't bother me. And I, I when I saw that it was two hours and ten minutes long, I have to say, Hannah, my heart sank. <laughs> But I think it carried it. I do. I genuinely, I thought it carried it well. I don't, I did not find it unenjoyable at all. It also finishes like a lot of films in the 80s and 90s did. And you don't see some more now. Is literally when the action stops. What happens after this? What next? Okay. The bad guy's dead. He's in the car. He's going to be vindicated. Off he goes. I suppose because it would actually take quite a lot of time for him to be vindicated and paperwork. And he would have to go back into Mm. prison for a while. And that's not the stuff that people want to see in a film. This was my question to my mum. I was like, okay, so in this situation, say you've been a fugitive, but you were wrongly imprisoned in the first place. What happens when they catch you and you've like exonerated yourself? Do you go back into prison? Do you get in trouble for having been a fugitive? I mean, probably yes, because he is still a guilty man. Well, he's guilty of being a fugitive. Yeah. And obviously he's he's not been exonerated of his crime officially yet. Yeah. Yeah, Tommy Lee Jones believing him is not enough. Well, I don't know, Hannah. I don't. I don't believe that. I'm sure that. I'm sure that is enough. But you know, <laughs> the fugitive rated or dated? I absolutely think it's rated, Hannah. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I don't think it's remotely dated. I'm here for expecting, it. I was fully expecting it not to be, but I agree. <laughs> rated. So, okay. what are we watching next week, Jen? Given that the film that you chose isn't available to watch anywhere, what's oh. our backup plan? Curses. Uh, well, I n- not curses from my perspective. As our backup plan to Into the West, sad face, we're going to watch Sleepless in Seattle. God, please, if you have the rights <laughs> to Into the West, if you could upload it somewhere in the interim, that would be amazing. Standard issue for all women.